Hello, my friends, my fellow unpersons in the unsafe space community. I am filming this at the end of a long, a long day, and uh, it's one of those days in which, you know, I'm not my best self. We all have days like that, and uh, frankly, I've been struggling with a lot of uh, misanthropy today. You know, I'm in that mood where the dark side of myself is, is very visible, and uh, it reminded me of a conversation I had with, with someone in our community recently who was struggling with something similar, and we recorded the conversation, but I haven't, I haven't put it out yet, but I thought, you know what, this is the day to put it out. So I'm recording this on Saturday night. I'll, I'll put this conversation out uh, tomorrow, Sunday. But the conversation you're about to hear is from a young man named Alan who was, he, like me, is, is a small, well, I'm, I'm more of an anarchist. He's a minarchist, but small government kind of guy, but struggling with an, a dark admiration or affinity towards Pinochet. Now, for those of you who don't know, Pinochet's the 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 dictator in Chile who allegedly threw communists out of helicopters. Right? It's a it's kind of a dark thing to have a an affinity for for Pinochet. But we all have these dark days, dark parts of ourselves. And today, I got off the phone with Carrie a little while ago. Today was a uh, it was my dark day. My dark self was visible. And so I was really relating to this guy today, this guy named Alan, who you're, you're going to hear. Because, you know, it was a day that was difficult for me to remember why I'm fighting for Western civilization. And uh, it was one of those days where I just kind of wanted to sit back and say, you know what? Society gets what it deserves. Let it burn. Uh... Now, I wouldn't be doing this show if that was how I actually felt, fundamentally. Fundamentally, um, there's a reason that we're fighting to preserve the values behind Western civilization. There's a reason that we get up every day and do this and, you know, lose money and argue with social justice warriors and and fight the fight. And it's because at the end of the day, I do think Western civilization is worth saving. I do think people are worth saving. There are There is love and creativity and goodness in the world. And there are great people doing wonderful things, people who love life and, and are really earnestly trying to be the best that they can be. But some days, some days it's easy to forget that. And I suspect that I'm not alone that we all struggle with this, and particularly during COVID, during this COVID stuff, Carrie mentioned this when I was talking to her earlier today, you know, COVID's got us locked in our houses, increasing our online interactions and decreasing our person-to-person -person interactions, and online's a hostile place. There's spiteful, vindictive, mean people online 
Not that they don't exist in real life, but in real life, face-to-face, -face, people tend to be nicer to each other. There's not the anonymity, and it's much more pleasant to have in-person interactions, and we're all sorely lacking in-person interactions now because, because everyone's shut in their home and restaurants are closed and people aren't going to work, and so we're missing out on actual human interaction. And when we do see each other, we're wearing masks. So I think, I think it's understandable that, that people may be struggling with this. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know, but I suspect not. Uh, I suspect that we're all sometimes just kind of getting burnt out on this thing. And that's when, that's when we're vulnerable to that dark side of us. Uh, and and those dark feelings to surface. And so I don't think it's healthy to ignore the fact that they exist. We all have a dark side. I certainly do. Uh, and thankful for friends like Carrie who helped me deal with it today. But it does exist. It's good to it's good to admit and understand that exists and uh, and not let it control you and just let it make you, powerful and give you the energy to fight for what is good in the world um, and what is worth fighting for. And that is the values of the Enlightenment. That is individualism, uh, freedom, individual rights, freedom of speech. All these things are worth fighting for. And... And that's why I do this. Anyway, that was a long, unscripted, rambling introduction. But here is my conversation with Alan, in which he wrote in to me and, and wanted to talk about his flirtation with Pinochet. And, and here's our conversation about it. So I hope that you enjoy it. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. And if you do have some of that dark side surface, just remember not all... Not all humans are horrible people. <laughs> not all humans are out to get you. Not all humans are mean and spiteful. The internet does not represent, uh, it's not a representative sample of humanity. Go have some face-to-face -face interaction with good people in your life to keep your spirits high and to remind you why life is worth living and fighting for and, and preserving and defending. So have a good day, everyone. With that, here is... Here's my conversation with Alan. So, uh, hey, Carter. Um, as I'm yeah. watching the cultural revolution start to progress through society, and the more that I see the sort of subversion that Yuri Bezmenov had talked about, um, the more I start to question whether a peaceful solution is really possible. Uh, I still hold out hope that it is, but I don't know. Um, hmm. during one of Yuri Bezmenov's lectures, he talks about after you get past, I think it's the destabilization phase, uh, you need a strong man and he states like in Chile, uh, <laughs> Oh, I didn't realize he referenced Pinochet. <laughs> yes, he did. Okay. Um, in order to drag the country back and, you know, Pinochet is a very strange character in history. Um, with the authoritarian social policies that he took, but the rather libertarian economic policies that he took. Um, 
And, you know, as things get more violent in the streets and as we're renaming streets and uh, destroying statues and uh, taking art out of the uh, general consciousness because it's any number of buzzwords, things are starting to look a lot like, again, the Cultural Revolution. Um, yeah. One of the best sources that I've found for it is... Uh, Frank DeCotter, I'm pretty sure that's how you uh, say his last name, uh, his book, The Cultural Revolution of People's History, from 1962 to 1976. Now, don't get scared. It's not a people's history like Howard Zitz. <laughs> um, uh, DeCotter is the, I think he's the head of the history department in Hong Kong University, um, and his Cultural Revolution book takes... Uh, documents from the Chinese archives, um, first-hand accounts from people who lived through it, a bunch of other historical sources to try and piece together what happened. And a lot of it is really similar. Yep. To what's happening now in the U.S., you're saying? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was the, there's the propaganda from the media. There was, uh, it was university-led. There was the uh, struggle sessions, which is kind of similar to what we're seeing happen mostly online now, but that I think that's just because that's where the world is. Um, there was definitely, you know, we've talked about it before on the show. There was definitely a uh, an erasing of history that was similar, and there's there's just a, a lot of parallels that are similar. Um, so I I agree with you that that's what it appears is happening in the U.S. right now. And not only do I agree with you, more importantly, uh, I know several. Uh, Chinese who lived through the Cultural Revolution who agree with us that that's what's happening in the United States right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember uh, you had Benjamin Boyce on your show at least once, possibly multiple mm -hmm. times, and uh, he had done an interview on his channel with one of Brett Weinstein's students who happened to be a Chinese foreign exchange student. Um. It was either an interview he did or he was talking about talking to her after the fact without actually interviewing her. Anyway, um, <clears throat> he had talked about how her parents had lived through the Cultural Revolution and that she was terrified when she was at Evergreen because she realized she was living through what her parents lived through. Yep. Uh, yeah. So let's, let's, let's circle this back to what you're – personal concern is too because i think we're all in agreement at least a lot of people that watch this show are on in agreement that there's something like a cultural revolution happening in the u.s right now um i know you mentioned uh pinochet but why don't you get into a little bit more of the, the personal question that you had about it okay well i mean it's it's quite simple how do you stop a communist revolution without authoritarian overreach by a right-wing government um right because i don't have an answer to that right right and and from your message to me you it sounds like you're struggling with quote keeping the faith as a you describe yourself as a minarchist right yes um, yeah i i very much dislike government overreach and just about everything but as this cultural revolution progresses as things get more violent on the streets as the riots continue I have a really hard time, you know, 
trying to think of a way that individuals without the government can stop it. Now, obviously, you know, people like you can help with it by speaking out against it, but that only does so much when that's in a discursive discursive, I think that's the word, or a space of discourses, uh, whereas on the ground, things are happening where your voice isn't going to reach people, and you can't really talk sense into people when they're in a giant giant mob tearing things down. That's true. That is that is 100% true. So, um, let, me, let me start by saying one high-level thing that I just want... I want to emphasize with you because I know you're, you know, struggling with this personally. And I feel like you're, I feel like you've got a little bit of like, I'm guilty for having these thoughts almost like I'm a minarchist. Why do I, why am I fantasizing about Pinochet and helicopters? Yeah, um, a little bit. Right. Uh, and, and I, and the reason I want to take this, uh, one of the reasons I want to talk to you about this is uh, I totally relate to that. I've joked about helicopters before and um, which is a sort of a dark humor, right? Because the reference, for those who don't know, the reference is, is Pinochet throwing commies out of helicopters, right? He was he was the strong man who was uh, was propped up by the U.S. actually mm -hmm. um, to to fight socialism and and um, and he did it very violently. And so, um, look, I think at the outset, I would say. I'm not, I don't know if you're Catholic, but like, I'm not Catholic. I'm not a religion that believes that you should feel guilty for thoughts and feelings. Like mm -hmm. if, if you never have thoughts of violence against your enemies, you're probably just lying to yourself. Everyone has those thoughts. <laughs> what makes you moral is what you do with those thoughts, right? You can, you can hate on your neighbor for something emotionally. And then what you do with that, what do you try and heal from it and, and like figure out how to re-engage with your neighbor in a more peaceful way or or maybe disengage from your neighbor in a peaceful way like do you handle it in a in a moral way or do you you know go grab the axe and go next door like th those are two different behaviors and it's the behaviors that need to be judged not your feelings about stuff so one of the one of the reasons i sometimes joke about pinochet and helicopters is i i absolutely have dark thoughts sometimes about the goddamn commies and like the, the the crazy Marxists that just want to run my life and ruin the lives of everyone I love around me and treat us like slaves and believe that we're their fodder to be used for whatever, you know, utopian idealistic cause they've got in their head. It's vile and uh, it deserves to be hated. And it makes sense that there's a sometimes a visceral response of like wanting to do violence. Uh, but I don't do violence and I don't advocate doing violence against them because uh, that's not the that's not the proper course of action. So that's the one thing I'll say. The other thing I'll say is. Um, and this is, again, by way of like forgiving yourself, I really don't like unearned guilt. I don't like people feeling guilty. A lot of times the best people feel guilty for things that they shouldn't. And the worst people just don't have any sense of guilt at all. <laughs> and so if you're going to if you're going to fight the worst people, you have to shrug your. You have to get rid of your unearned guilt that you don't have. So you don't need to feel guilty for, you know, liking Pinochet memes or thinking about helicopters once in a while. <laughs> um, you know, that's fine. That's natural. And I would say that's a healthy response because your life, your life is literally, you know, if someone is spouting Marxism and communism and actually has control, if they're, if they're a crazy bum on the street talking to themselves, then 
then they don't right. have any control. But if if your leaders and institutions with power over you are literally spouting this crap, uh, they are threatening your life. I mean, like you are you are being threatened. So feeling that is totally natural and normal. And we shouldn't pretend that it's just words and that words have no meaning and that they have no connection to reality. Um, words are what justify this stuff. Words are what gets, I mean, yeah, people like Stalin and Mao used violence, but they, the, the culture that supported them, the way that they rose to power. I mean, Hitler used words. Oh yeah. It's a great example. Hitler was elected. He used words to get, uh, to get, to the power where he could then use violence. So that's okay that you feel that way. The last thing I'll say about, uh, I don't know if this is even the last thing. The other thing I'll say about this is, um, I don't judge someone too harshly if they are, if they believe in individual rights, if they have dedicated themselves like, to the moral foundations of the enlightenment. Like if they, if that's, if they've got the right kind of moral compass mm -hmm. um, and they are under duress, like, and that could be anything from a hostage situation, like literally, right. or it could be they're under duress because there's an entire oppressive state with men with guns who will do things to them uh, that are immoral. Uh, I have a hard time judging judging them harshly for the reaction that they think is most rational, both from a strategic and a tactical perspective. We can argue about what the strategic and tactical perspectives are, but the idea that uh, it's somehow immoral to entertain the idea of, of using counterforce, get that out of your head. It's not immoral. It might be dumb and impractical, right? Uh, but it's not immoral. Um, you are under duress. Uh, and you're more under duress the more this country becomes an authoritarian hellhole. Uh, so um, I think everyone would agree that if you were stuck in Nazi Germany, uh, armed conflict would be against the authorities would be completely okay. Right. Um, so and there's there's very there's there's a grades of that is my point, and mm -hmm. it's up to each person to make that decision themselves about when is it okay to support. <laughs> actual violence so i'll put all that stuff aside for a moment and let's let's talk about the pinochet and, and political thing um a couple questions one uh what are you trying to save well i mean as you had described earlier i mean the enlightenment the basic concept of individual rights the constitution's a nice one too um okay you know it, our country was allowed to become what it is and what it has been because of the focus on individual rights, uh, the focus right. on the Constitution. Then also, I mean, individual and negative rights are kind of synonymous, but a focus mm -hmm. more on negative rights, um, which is why I yep. have major problems with like the Great Society and the New Deal and all that, because, you know, those- There are corruption of the concept of rights, yes. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, at, at a very base level, um, I want to save freedom of expression because okay. I'm the kind of dude that gets shot in those sort of regimes. So you and me both. Um, okay. So I agree with all that. I want to save all those things too. Um, it's probably why you're part of the unsafe space community. Uh, right. However, 
Uh, if I said to you, you need to be very concerned about uh, preserving all of those things in Pakistan, what would you say to me? Uh, it's hard to preserve something that wasn't there to begin with. Okay. Um, that's good. Now, if I was to say to you, you need to preserve all of those things in downtown San Francisco, what would you say to me? That's going to be a tough one. Uh, but I think it could be possible. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I try and be optimistic about these things. Um, you know, I, I guess it would depend on just now, granted, I don't know what the demographics are like around San Francisco, not just in the center of the city, but around it. But I mean, if if it's anything like New York, you have one blue area surrounded by a ton of red areas. Um, right. So maybe you could try getting the people in those areas around it to rally and slowly change the culture within the city instead of the opposite of how it normally goes with the city changing the culture around it. Again, I don't know if that's possible. It might be too optimistic, but and well, oh, actually, hold on. The reason for my question, though, I, was I know where you're going. I, I want you to limit just that blue, the 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 darkest blue area you can think of, like the most commie area, Berkeley. Right. Save Berkeley, please. Okay. Well, uh, first, I have to make the assumption that there's people there that want to be saved, um, which I'd hope there are at least a couple, and there's probably a few. Yeah. And unfortunately, the main answer to that might be a state or federal level intervention um, because okay. the state is there, especially in the case of the property destruction that goes on, because one of the things that the state is supposed to do is protect your property rights. Um, right. So. Do you think there's anyone in Pakistan who uh, is just as much of a minarchist as you who would like to be saved? Probably. Okay. Um, the reason I'm asking this is I I don't think so. At the beginning, we talked about you wanted to save enlightenment values, which mm -hmm. I do as well. Uh, I don't want to... I don't want to put this... It would be nice... For the entire United States to embrace Enlightenment values again. Um, and you can say that there's a foundation for them. That's kind of true, but that foundation has been lost for generations and generations. So there's not like a cultural foundation, really. Right. Too much. Um, so it would be nice. Uh, frankly, it would be nice if the whole world embraced enlightened values we would be all much richer and have, have have better standards of living and happier and would have more free time and would be would have flying cars like if the if the whole world embraced enlightenment values we would be much better off as a planet but uh i'm not i'm not jesus my job's not to save humanity right at least not in my lifetime um and I don't 
I don't know that. Well, I strongly believe that it's not possible to save people who do not want to be saved. Yes, that's why I made the caveat earlier about how you'd need people that would want to be saved in Berkeley. Right. And just imagine for a second, let's say you saved just because it's, I guess, driving distance from Berkeley. Let's say you you saved Nevada the next state over, right? Nevada became a haven for the Enlightenment values. Well, people could Berkeley from Berkeley could move there, right? Yeah. What does the what's happened to the United States for the last several generations? Where do all the freedom lovers from the world? Where have they gone? What do you mean, like a specific state, or just well, a country? So oh. I mean, I don't know about you, but I know people from. Uh, Africa and Asia and Europe, all of whom grew up yearning for freedom. And where did they go? Here. They all came here. So I think before we worry about saving a particular geographic area, because here's my particular concern. Mm -hmm. It'd be nice to save a geographic area. It'd be nice if that area was the U.S., I don't think you realize how grave the threat is. The threat is that the ideas themselves will be extinguished. Oh, yes. So I I am very familiar with that. Because, I mean, the U.S. is a geographic area, but unlike any other nations, it is a set of ideas. It's not necessarily a people like a lot of other nations are. Um, right. And without those ideas, we're nothing. You know? Yeah. And... You know, I, I, it's kind of silly to think, especially in the modern day of the Internet, that you could ever have the burning of the library at Alexandria again. <laughs> However, um, visit China. Right. <laughs> Suppression of the Internet is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, stuff leaks out and, and there's, there's you know, VPNs and, and people exchanging information. But it's much, much harder to keep that information alive. And it's not impossible that that the ideas of the enlightenment just get so lost that it takes hundreds of years to recover. Um, and we're in a culture, again, I'm not trying to be a pessimist, but we are mm. in a culture which is diametrically opposed to the enlightenment ideas. Um, almost every major cultural institution is, is opposed to the enlightenment ideas. I don't think all the people are, Mm -hmm. And I do agree with you. There are people, probably even in Berkeley, who want to be saved, right? Who who want to want the Enlightenment to continue. But uh, the battle that I'm fighting is to save the ideas, not to save people who don't want to be saved. Right. And so, if I look at the idea of a strong man, if I look at a Pinochet, right? First of all, uh Okay, he threw a bunch of commies out of helicopters, and he I guess he stopped some socialist progression there. Um, but is Chile great now? Not really, no. Did the culture change against socialism? I mean, I actually think it maybe was bad that he brought— so, the, the, he, he had so people who don't know. He, he, he brought the— um, Students of Milton Friedman, actually, yep. like some some kind of free market economist people um, in to 
help with some of the economic reforms. Now, he didn't implement them completely. Like, they kept control of the copper mines, for example, the government right. and that kind of stuff. But they did return a lot of previously nationalized private property. And so uh, he did some things that economically minarchists would, would cheer, right? Bro. Not everything he did economically, yeah. but some things he did economically. It was better um, than the alternative that was rising at the time. Right, although... Economically although, speaking. Yeah, although some of the people that I know who hate communism the most mm -hmm. lived under it. Uh, so okay. what's happened to Chile now? I don't, I don't know because now Pinochet was a lot of evil mixed mm -hmm. with some of this decent economics. Well, the whole thing is painted as bad now. So now he's given a bad name to free market economists because uh, his name is attached to them. And I don't know what Chile's culture is like right now, but I bet it's not yay, laissez-faire, free market capitalism. Um, he hasn't killed social. He didn't kill socialism culturally. He killed a few commies. But I don't know that that was a I don't know that that was good in the long term for for Chile's development. Right. Um I'm not. I think you'd have. You could make a case that that Chile's uh, society is worse off now. He may have also saved lives. Obviously, if Chile had gone complete communist, uh, you would have had just as much death and human rights violations. It just would have been the other side doing it and different people dying. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's a tragedy almost either way, and that's because. Uh, a culture that doesn't understand enlightenment values is a tragedy in and of itself. It's just a tragedy. It's going to end up, there's going to be innocent deaths. Right. Um, so I'm, I don't know that Pinochet was good in the long run. Like I get that there's a short run, like, Oh, he got rid of some commies. And even if you're anti-communist, I still don't know that that was the best way. Maybe, maybe Chile should have just totally hit rock bottom. Right, like a drug addict. Maybe Chile should have just been allowed to totally hit rock bottom, destroy itself with its stupid Marxist ideas, and maybe the people would come out of that hating Marxism, and we would have a beacon of freedom emerging in South America. That would have been lovely. Right. Uh, right. I mean, but I'll, that didn't happen. And I mean, I, you, you do bring up a good point, and I'll admit that that that's the other major way of doing things that i've thought of is just let it happen and hopefully people will come out of it as you said on the other side hating those marxist ideas and i definitely agree with you that pinochet did engage in a lot of evil um and you you know you make a really good point that in doing so it makes it really easy for propagandists to take everything that he did and put it under that umbrella of evil. Um, oh, Milton Friedman himself has been attacked because of his association with Pinochet. Really? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and you know, I don't know that he even, he may have met Pinochet a couple times, once or twice. I'm not sure. But like he wasn't. You know, he didn't roll up his sleeves and move to Chile and fix the economy, right? right. Um, he wasn't that into it. Um, he gave advice, and maybe the the for the Christians in the audience, like maybe the biblical phrase is "pearls before swine," right? <laughs> he, he he told swine how to have a better economy. Okay, 
uh it worked but uh was it good in the long run i don't know but the world is always going to be full of people who well let's not let's hope maybe not full of but there will always be people in the world who are psychologically predisposed to hate individual responsibility liberty and freedom there's yes. are always going to be um there's going to be people who want to dominate other people and there's going to be people who want to be dominated and right now that's most of the world mm-hmm. most of the world wants to be a slave to some master or a master themselves and that's how they view the world they view the world as not equal exchanges between uh equal individuals who can voluntarily and to their mutual benefit exchange things they view the world as domination between one party and another you win if you win i lose if i win you lose that's the way it is and those people have no place in a free society that mentality does not belong in a free society at all but that mentality is all over the place and so if your rule is how do I take an arbitrary geographical area and turn it into a bunch of people who don't have that mentality? I think you're setting yourself up for failure. Right. I think a better question is, how do I find a bunch of people with a an, an enlightenment mentality, a bunch of individualists, and how do we get together and set up a society for ourselves? Maybe, probably in the U.S. somewhere, but how do we set this up in a way where we know that those other people exist in the world, but we don't really have to do anything about it except for protect ourselves against them. Right. But we're all in it together and we're here and we don't have that problem within our own community. And I think that was the vision for the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, But obviously that vision was not met fully, even at the beginning. And certainly while there've been some improvements, there's also been, Uh, massive backsliding to you know we use the good ideas to improve the actual status of many people um the abolition of slavery being the obvious example uh but we simultaneously started abandoning the philosophic foundations that allowed us to be abolitionists in the first place so um you know i guess my i guess I'm going to throw this back at you. Like what's your fantasy about a Pinochet person in the U S what would happen? What, like, what would you, what would you support that you are worried about feeling guilty about supporting in the U S well, uh, I would like to avoid genuine killings. Um, cause that's bad. Okay. Uh, the old meme quote, if you kill your enemies, they win. Um, which, you know, you kind of just talked about with Pinochet doing that. And now Chile, uh the sort of uh free market economy or economics are now demonized right um i would hope for a clearing out of institutions um i don't know exactly how to go about that i mean there's a couple things that might be useful um one possible strongman thing to do and this doesn't require any military intervention right away or anything like that are you familiar with the communist control act of 1954 i think was that what mccarthy used i don't i don't remember he may i'm not familiar with it but so basically all it did was make it so that 
any members of the Communist Party in the USA could not serve in an elected or appointed office. Mm. Um, if I remember correctly, it also applied to derivative groups. And I think expanding that to, say, the DSA might be a way to help curb some of it. Yeah. Well, here's... Again, this is just getting back to the unsafe space uh, philosophy here. Um, the Constitution's not bad. Like, <laughs> our freedoms are laid out pretty clearly, aren't they? Right. Do we follow it? Um, rarely anymore. So do you think another law written on a different piece of paper with men enforcing it who are worse than the founders is going to help? I mean, hey, you asked me what my authoritarian fantasy was. <laughs> oh, I see. That's your authoritarian yes, fantasy. Yes. Uh, In reality, well, I, I understand exactly where you're going with that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to push back on the idea that Pinochet was a strong, strong man because we've been using that argument. Okay. Yeah. I don't think he was a strong man. I think he was a pathetic puppet. Mm. Um, oh, of the CIA he, and the U.S. government. Well, look— he enriched himself quite a lot. He didn't. He didn't approach this with a. I. I don't like communism because I. Uh, and I don't like socialism because I'm a free. I like. A, I'm a freedom lover, an individualist. That was not his philosophy. Right. Uh, he was like, if there's going to be a king, I want to be a king. And how do we make the economy a little bit more successful so that I can get richer and people can be richer generally? Because that's better for my country. It's very Chinese, actually. Like if you look at mm-hmm. modern day China, like. Yeah, they they opened up their economy in many ways because they he they want to run an efficient tax farm. That's what Pinochet wanted. He wanted to run an efficient tax farm, and he partly wanted to just enrich himself. And he he wasn't a he wasn't led by, uh, he wasn't a moral man led by moral ideas that was that had the balls to stand up for what was right. He was just a a little brute who happened to be in the right place at the right time and was smart enough to realize that if he pushed socialism on the economy, he would have, you know, he'd be ruling, he'd be ruling a poorer country than if he asked for Milton Friedman's help. Right. right. And that's um, a very fair point. I, I use the term strongman just because like, that's usually how dictators are termed in uh right. Historical. Vision, I guess. Well, the reason I want to push back on it, though, is because I like the idea and I want to reapply it to someone else. Okay. So I I don't think it's I don't think your enemies win just because you kill them. Right. If you're killing them in self-defense. Uh, and you can morally like if if you're killing them because they're they're trying to kill you uh, that you don't you're not sacrificing any moral principles for that in fact you're upholding moral principles and it's a moral thing to do self-defense is moral uh violent self-defense is moral mm-hmm. so um if you want a strong man i think a strong man nowadays an actual strong man would would be someone willing to say uh i'm to draw a line in the sand and say all right all right marxist giant deep state government um you know all right authoritarians this is the line you cross it i defend myself and i do it to the death 
that's a strong man. Right. Doing it on principle. Mm-hmm. That's a strong man. Um, and I do think we could use uh, a strong man like that. I think if he did it by himself, it would be blue suicide. So I do think it would be, it's necessary to build a community. You don't want to be by yourself trying to prevent the authoritarian government from destroying the enlightenment completely. But if you're with millions of other enlightenment lovers, well, you you have a chance, you have a chance to, to fight for it. So, and those people, well, there's going to be, I mean, there would be violence if, if this, if it turned into like, let's just imagine, I just interviewed the free state project, uh, a woman from the free state project named Carla Garrick. Let's imagine New Hampshire secedes. Let's mm-hmm. imagine it's full of libertarian types, minarchist types. Let's imagine it secedes and the federal government says, nope, we're going to send in the army. Well, you need a strong man, <laughs> right? I mean, not a dictator, but like right. you need strong men defending New Hampshire if that happens. Like mm-hmm. you, you can't have a bunch of people who are like, well, I just want to talk about it. They have to be willing to fight. So there is something admirable about that. And I think the admiration for Pinochet, the kind of like the dark admiration for Pinochet that exists right now is we are living in a culture in which there are no men, largely. Masculinity has been dead for a couple generations. So there's very few men who are willing to say, yeah, actually, uh, when people come to violate my my rights, responding with force is the honorable thing to do. Um. We, I think we need to regain that because that that sense of masculinity is uh, is what protects societies mm-hmm. from uh, Genghis Khan, right? But uh, that's the kind of that's the kind of person that I think that we need. Those are the kind of people. I won't say that's a person. We don't want a dictator, but right. those are the kind of people. We those are the men we need, not Pinochets. We need men willing to throw communists out of helicopters in the middle of a war because the communist is trying to kill them, right? That That's what right. we need. You can't preemptively do it. Right. Right. Um, but there's not a lot of preemption in, in a – I mean, I don't know if this is going too far for the show, but, like, if we're in an environment where an officer of the opposing forces says – yes, go ahead and bomb your town, you can shoot the officer as soon as he's given the order. Like, right. you don't have to wait, right? As soon as there's threat of force against you, you can shoot. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we're, we've become a society that's too afraid of violence because we view violence as, um, and actually the wrong people are too afraid of violence, right? The left is fine with violence. Right. But the people on the right are afraid of violence. They don't want to have violence because they're trying to be civil, which is great. But at some point, this isn't going to be civil anymore. And we definitely need people who are willing to step up and find their inner Pinochet, at least in that respect. Mm -hmm. And that's that is one of the things that I fear is the collapse of civility. I mean, we've been heading towards it for a while now. Um, And, you know, this is one of the. Uh, fun pieces of history that often gets written out of the history books or skipped over is that every time or just about every time that there was a fascist dictator rising in the 20th century, there were communists trying to start a revolution in that state that 
at least helped, if not caused, the fascists to rise to power. Um, yep. You know, it it yep. happened. That's before. the origin of Antifa, right? Yep, exactly. The anti-fascist so, action in Germany. Yeah. Well, and it, so it's understandable, right? Because I think people, people, people with a healthy self-esteem hate Marxism. Yeah. Um, yeah. I honestly, I don't even think it's an IQ thing. I don't think it's a, I think it's just a psychological thing. If you have a healthy self-esteem, Marxism is repugnant to you. Um, and, you know, it's scary when Marxists start getting violent and talking about owning your life and treating you like a slave and making you part of their, the Borg. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that they turn to, you know, they turn to fascists. Because the fascists are the only ones that are standing up saying, yeah, we'll fight them. Uh, but we need liberty-minded people to say, yeah, we'll, we will fight them. And as far as I know, I'm not a history expert, but as far as I know, the closest thing we ever had to that was the Founding Fathers. who said, yeah, we will fight, right? We pledge our, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honors. We will fight. Mm -hmm. um, but I've never seen anything like that since. I don't know. Do you know of examples in history where that's happened? Um. I mean, I guess you could say a bit of the Civil War, um, oh, because, maybe. I mean, yeah. you were extending freedom to people that should have had it but didn't. Um, it was still based on principles, unless you're going to take the argument that it was, you know, federal government overreach, which I'm not the biggest fan of. But I think a lot of people, regardless of what you can argue that Lincoln's motivations were, uh, I definitely think a lot of people were fighting for the cause that of, of ending slavery. Like there was definitely yes. a lot of abolitionists in the, in, in the North, mm -hmm. uh, believing slavery was abhorrent. Uh, so, and in fact, they were there at the founding of the nation, as you know, like there was an, yep. an argument, uh, even, even when, during the drafting of the declaration of independence, it was originally drafted, uh, to be a treaties to include, uh, arguments against slavery and South Carolina refused to sign unless those were removed. So, yep. Uh, you know, it, it was, it by no means were all the states pro-slavery at the beginning of the nation. Mm -hmm. Um, so. But you're right. Well, there genuinely aren't that many examples of people standing up and being actually willing to fight. You know? Well, but the, the hope that you're giving me is both the examples that we've said in history came from America. Right. So that's good. This is true. Uh, I definitely think it will be here, and there are people here. It's not <clears> – <throat> there are actually men stand, who will stand up and fight. Mm -hmm. they, they do exist. It's just that they're not very prominent. They don't have long, uh, large voices. Um, they, they, aren't, they aren't given a lot of press, and I think a lot of normies just don't know about them. But they do, they do exist. There are people who are willing to do that, um, and uh, – it's probably high time that we all circled wagons together and made sure that we are building the kind of community that doesn't require a Pinochet to stop the Marxists, but can stop the Marxists on our own without creating some sort of horrible dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's helpful at all. I mean, do you still feel like you're tempted to have... You can still go fantasize about Pinochet, I guess. If you want to, <laughs> are, are you like, are you just worried that it will happen? Are you tempted? Are you tempted that you like want it to happen? 
Um, I mean, on my worst days, I'm tempted. And I use worse as in, like, when I was... When the riots were first kicking off, I had, like, six or seven streams of different cities going at the same time and just watching everything burn and people's lives being destroyed and hearing the same rhetoric that I've heard in classes and heard at Evergreen and that sort of stuff. It right. It kind of tempted me. Um, yeah. But a lot of it is fear that that is the only way or that that is the most probable way. Well, in terms of it being the only way, I don't think a moral person can say that's the only way unless they've tried the other ways. And the other ways, right. including moving to a state with everyone else, uh, trying to oppose it with strong people who are liberty-minded. Like, right. you know, I, all that stuff needs to happen. Um, is, is it the inevitable? That I don't know, and I don't want to be a pessimist, and I, but I don't want to be overly optimistic. Maybe. I mean, history does show. That's one of my concerns I have with what's happening is the the people on the right becoming uh, more comfortable with the idea of any sort of strong person to stop the communists. And I, yes. I, get, that, I get that we want the, the Marxists stopped. I get that that's good. But in some sense, but uh, I don't know that that's the best path forward for us. Right. <laughs> I don't know that it ends well for liberty folks either, right? No, I agree um, that historically speaking, it really doesn't. Right, right. So you might not be the first to be lined up against the wall and shot, but you're on the list. Yes, exactly. So... You know, the commies get thrown out of the helicopter. You get starved to death 10 years later, but it's still bad. Yes. Right. Um, now, so, um, I have a I have a question for you, and this is yeah. about the Free State Project that you had brought up previously. Sure. And sure. the possibility of, say, the federal government saying, no, you can't secede. Um, how, how do I phrase this correctly? I guess... Do you genuinely think that you could stop the force of the U.S. government? Because here's the thing, right? So if you were to have – and, like, I really do like the idea of creating a community of people that are liberal-minded and all that um, mm -hmm. in the classical sense of the word. But if – we are to allow the commies to take over the U.S. government as it stands and go off to our own little space. How do you defend against the might of the U.S. government trying to reclaim a state? Well, uh, I don't know that you can, so I don't right. want to make it sound like, yeah, that that would work. Uh I think that there's probably some strategy that needs to be involved with respect to when you secede. You want to do it at a moment when um, the United States is weak and preoccupied. Right. Um, so, um, you know, th there's some strategy involved with that. You may want to get allies, right, um, before you do that, right? So 
even the American Revolution needed France. Right. Not that France would be a good ally for this, but you know, you may need some allies. Um, you do have a little bit of advantage that, although maybe the Civil War is a counter argument to what I'm about to say, but you do have a little bit of an advantage that I I don't see, like, I don't see regular people even in a socialist America. I don't see regular people saying, "Yeah, uh, level Manchester." Right. Um, like, uh, I don't, I don't know that killing the population of New Hampshire is something that would go over well. Um, and, and I agree with that. And like, I understand that there are various tactics that one could use, you know, I, I spent a lot of time reading Mao's little red book so I could know exactly what I was talking about when it came to communism. And, you know, the dude brings up some good points about guerrilla warfare and, You know, us fighting in the Middle East shows that guerrilla warfare definitely can work. But, you know, at the same time, how long does that go on for? Do you reach a state of eternal warfare because, you know, you have this giant government sitting next to you controlled by communists? And you, yeah, you're playing the rebels. You could win eventually, maybe, but... Well, I'll ask you this. Mm-hmm. What are the alternatives? I mean, we kind of went over one of them earlier, but other than that, there aren't many. Um, right. So, I like, mean, trust me, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I definitely like the impulse. Um, my only concern is that if we let, if we just go, can I swear? Yeah. Would you, if we just go fuck off to our own little state and we let right. the federal government fall, we might be screwed, and that's what well, I'm afraid of. If we have a Pinochet in the federal government, though, he's not going to be better than Marxists that are right. in the federal government, right? So, um, I I get that, um, but again, it's <laughs> I guess what you're asking is like, can we? S- subvert the federal government somehow so that they will leave us alone like there's if there's a way to save the federal government in the entire united states then like we do that first i i just i think there's a lot of people who believe that that's probably beyond hope at this yeah um so so then the question's like okay well if we're gonna have to secede what do we need the u.s federal government to be like in order for us to survive and leave us alone um and uh you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but maybe we do have to be doing something in the federal government. I mean, maybe we'd still have allies in the U.S. that would be we would need to to run for office or do something more surreptitious. I mean, at that point, we're in a state of war. So uh, in a state of war, you can do kind of whatever you want. <laughs> like right. If, right. if they're attacking us, there's, there's kind of like no holds barred at this point. And uh you know, I would say if the only chance for freedom to survive is that there needs to be a hundred year war where where New Hampshire or some state barely survives for a hundred years, but it but they emerge and freedom emerges at the end of it. Okay. That's better than the you know, that's better than freedom dying completely. Right. Uh, so like there is no here's the thing. I do have hope that in the long run, reality always wins in the long run. Marxism is anti-reality. Mm-hmm. Socialism is anti-reality. It is broken. It will not work. In the long run, we will win. The question is, 
is it a thousand years from now? Because that's a really long time. <laughs> yeah. So bad ideas can survive for quite a long time. They can mooch off of the good ideas. That's what's happening in the U.S., right? The oh, yeah. U.S. was a, a good idea that built a lot of wealth, and now that wealth is being used to enable the destruction of the very principles that made that wealth possible. So that could go on for quite some time. Uh, but eventually, eventually that implodes. So the question is, uh, can we can we save it in some area? Can we save those ideas in some area kind of perpetually? Right. Um, right. And I, the answer might be no. There's no like, there's no really cool moral law of the universe that's like wherever there is on Earth, there will always be some place for freedom lovers. Like, I, nope, that's not a law of the universe. <laughs> like, yeah. you may all be dead. That could happen. It might be that every book that even references the Enlightenment is wiped out completely forever, yep. um, and someone has to rediscover it hundreds of years from now. I mean, I don't think that's likely, but like. Anything is is really possible. There's no moral law to the universe that that can that we can rest on with reassurance that things will be good for our kids or mm -hmm. for, for our generation, or our kids or our grandkids. But we do know in the end that we know our ideas are correct. We know in the end the ideas will win. So now the question is like, okay, well, what can we do in our lifetimes and for the lifetimes of our, of our you know next immediate generations to preserve as much of that as possible? Um, so I'm not against actually continuing to try and fight the culture war in the u.s because i think we do need the culture in the u.s to to uh survive with as much remnants of enlightenment values as possible for as long as possible even if eventually it's going to fall mm -hmm. um because you know there are different versions of of marxism like you could end up with a european style socialism that has no interest in invading new hampshire right or you could end up with full-blown communism that, uh, you know, definitely wants to annex New Hampshire. And so the culture of the U.S. matters regardless of whether you move to a particular state and, and want to secede. So that the cultural war needs to continue to be fought, mm -hmm. um, even if you're in a place that's going to secede. Right. And that, that focus on the culture war is very important. I mean, that... So gaming out, you know, your everybody moved to New Hampshire thing. Um, right. If we are able to. Again, by the way, I just want to be clear. I'm not pushing New Hampshire right now. It's it's on a list of states I'm considering. But right, right. I, just using New Hampshire as an example. Right. Um, everybody moved to a state or maybe a couple states bordering each other. You know, if we are able to fight the culture war and change enough people's opinions within other states. At the very least, that might give pockets of resistance that could be useful. Um, yep. And, you know, I I think that the culture war is by far the most important part of politics right now. Um, I've been really focusing on linguistic propaganda. Um, you know, you had talked about words earlier, and there's so much of it right now. You know, all the different words that the left uses and twisting definitions and uh, creating their little newspeak. Um, mm -hmm. And I've been doing my best to change or at least get people to question the ideology around me. Um, 
it makes me a little bit hopeful because I just came out of college in a rather uh, left-wing state, and there was quite a bit of uh, Marxist subversion going on there. And there's about to be a little bit more coming because of, you know, the BLM uh, acti right. activities and the George Floyd riots and all that. Um, we're going to be hanging a Black Lives Matter flag in our student union. Of course. Um, yeah. I'm surprised you don't have one already. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but the amount of people there, both students and a couple faculty and a decent amount of just the normal workers there that saw something wrong. Like one of the the best examples that I had was one of the people I was working with. I was talking to them about how gender studies was there's something broken with it and she then told me about a student that she had worked with who was completely normal and then went into that class and came out with the brain worms and acted completely different started calling everybody out for everything started having horrible depression anxiety etc you know normal people are noticing it they just yep. don't know where it comes from, how to classify it, how to fight it, etc. Um, yeah. Well, this is one of the reasons I actually think it's important to have a, again, let's just use New Hampshire as an example, but mm -hmm. if you have a place that is, so people, people are generally very bad at imagining things being radically different from the way they are. Right. Um, this is how societies, this is how kind of culture changes over time, right? It, this is how Overton windows fly. This yep. is how things kind of move slowly over time. It's the frog in the pot and the boiling water analogy, right? So people have a very hard time thinking how anything could be different than it is. So, uh, you know, it's amazing to me sometimes how people are like, well, I can't imagine what it would be like if the government wasn't involved in education. It's like, well, they weren't mm -hmm. always involved. Like, you know, that did exist before. Like, there there was a time when they weren't so involved. Like, there was a time when your your healthcare wasn't tied to your employment, right? Like, but they it's so far away from how things happen now that they can't even conceive of some of the stuff. So, I think one advantage to being in a a location that can start to uh, serve as an example for what a free society looks like um, will actually help people understand these values and probably attract them to that place. So if in New Hampshire, like if it's New Hampshire, uh, you know, you'll see people starting to look at like, oh, oh, there is an alternative and oh, things actually seem to be working there. And actually this, this seems more moral and I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you know, this could work. And like, and you start to get, you get what, you become what the United States was uh, for for most of its history, which was the that kind of shining beacon on a hill that freedom lovers, like, would uh, Flock to. swim through the ocean to get to because, uh, because they just wanted the freedom. You need that example. Um, because without that example, it's all talk and people are kind of like, well, who would build the roads and who would do this and who would do that? And I don't understand. How could you not have the government do healthcare and blah, blah, blah. Like they just don't get it because mm -hmm. they just don't understand what it will be like to actually be responsible for yourself uh, and let other people be responsible for themselves. Um, but, but if they see it, 
it's very attractive. Um, so, you know, and, and it, even a small place like New Hampshire, I mean, look at Hong Kong, the, the Carla in, in the video compared it to compared New Hampshire to Hong Kong. She wants it to be like the, the Hong Kong of the East coast or whatever in mm -hmm. New England, Hong Kong, I think she said. And, uh, look, Hong Kong was, it's a crappy little Island with like no natural resources. It's, it's, I mean, it's in a good spot for shipping and yes. banking, but, uh, you know, it's not like Hong Kong was sitting on, you know, millions of tons of uranium next to millions of tons of gold next to a diamond mine. Uh, it's not, it's not that, mm -hmm. um, but it was the freedom that made it the hub of Asia for, for a long, long time and, and brought a tremendous amount of prosperity and people, Americans moved to Hong Kong. Americans moved to Hong Kong because it was better. Like it, it was, I mean, in many ways it wasn't better in every way, but like it, it was a pretty great place. So, um, I think if you have something like that, you're not, you're not stuck with just the people that are there. You're going to start attracting the best people from around the world. Um, to help you. And that, uh, I think that's part of your defense, frankly, mm -hmm. um, is that people look up to you and the best people start coming and you, you'll have like prosperity is a good defense, right? You can afford more weapons. You can afford more security. You can afford to protect yourself more. You can withstand trade embargoes. You can fight to, to keep access to your ports. Like there's things you can do if you've got money and freedom freedom begets prosperity right right i mean and you know it your point about attracting some of the best people and also you said earlier about getting allies how do you do that when this sort of subversion that we're seeing in the United States is occurring in most of the major nations that you might get allies from. Well, I mean, your any recruiting effort will be possibly lost because, yeah, they're not going to want you to recruit allies. But... Uh, it's hard to hide prosperity. True. <laughs> like, we are in an age where, where like people can install signal and send messages to each other and have telegram groups. And like, it's, it's, we are beyond the age, even in China. I mean, I know I said it's possible to kind of kill these ideas earlier. And, and I think it is like to effectively kill them, but, uh, and you can wipe out books and stuff, but, uh, <sighs> Keeping hidden the the success of a few million people in a very interesting place that seceded from the United States, I don't think it's going to be very possible to keep that success a secret. Uh, yeah, it might not be as well known, but the best people are the people who are interested in that kind of thing and are finding out. And so, uh, I don't, I don't think they could, I don't think they could keep it a complete secret. Could they? Could they release propaganda about how horrible it is? Yeah, there's like the reverse idea of Potemkin villages, right? They, they, they could be like, I'm sure they could film some slums in New York and be like, this is New Hampshire. It's a mess. Mm. People are dying on the streets, right? Like, I'm sure they can do all that kind of propaganda if they wanted to. Uh, but frankly, if they get caught doing that propaganda and there's 
information trickling out that's non-propaganda, uh, their propaganda itself becomes a an advertisement because it means that they're so afraid of you finding out how good it is there that they need to turn their propaganda wheels and really work to make you believe that two plus two is five. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and, and that will work on some people, but the best minds, uh, that will be an incentive. Like, I mean, you probably have this reaction too. If, if, uh, if the government or like a, if a statist tell me don't read blah, blah, blah. What's my reaction? I'm going like, to oh, go read it. I got to go read that. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> What are you trying to hide? <laughs> like, yep. You know, um, so the best people see through that, um, regardless of what it is. So, you know, that's all right. We actually want the best people first. True. So. Uh, on the propaganda front, I don't necessarily think it would take the form of uh, reverse Potemkin. What's that word? Potemkin? Uh, Potemkin villages. That's it might not. I was it. just okay. I just yeah. Um, because yeah. something that I mean, the current form that communism is taking, you could very easily go well. Uh, being as you know, most New England states are like this, and also based off of voting patterns, I guess that it would end this way as well. It would probably be majority white, and so they could point to that and say, well, here's this racist state with a bunch of white nationalists gathering there, and the fact that we've reframed liberal values and the enlightenment values as being whiteness or white supremacy, you know, you could easily throw that kind of propaganda at the state from the outside. Yeah, but I mean, you can be, it doesn't matter what your race. Oh, if I know, you're smart I know. And you're an individualist and you see that you're like, I don't, I don't care that like, I, I see that you're calling them white supremacists, but I also see that you're calling Enlightenment values, white supremacy. So I'll go there. <laughs> like, right, right. I don't think that would deter anyone. Um, I mean, the among smarter people, and I mean like more informed people generally mm -hmm. who are thinking about this, it's already a joke, regardless of those people's race. Like I, I know several different races of people who already think if some if you call someone a Nazi, they're like, oh, okay, like, so they like freedom. <laughs> <laughs> no one believes them anymore, right? Right? No one believes them anymore. They've ruined. It. They've ruined it. They're, you know, you can't you can't maintain a lie for very long. So the advantage we have is, uh, lies are weak. They have only lies. Mm -hmm. That's all they have. Their only intellectual ammunition is lies. So they've got lies. Yeah, maybe the lie could last for a little bit, but and you know, anyone with a little bit of intelligence sees through the lie after you know, not very long. And, and the lie, the lie actually starts serving the opposite of its purpose because now they're pointing to New Hampshire for you saying, we really hate this place and we're the opposite of what you want. So, um, you know, it becomes an advertisement in some way. Right. Even Potemkin villages, right? Like there were leftists at the time in the U S who believed the Potemkin village stuff for and real. were like, right. Yeah. Like, Oh, you know, we want to go, but the people on the, I'll say the non-left, like they used it as an example of like, oh, <laughs> look how bad it is. You have to fake it. Mm -hmm. It's so bad that you have to fake it. You've got to get Walter Durante to write a, a fake New York Times article <laughs> and win a Pulitzer Prize for lying. Um, and the smart people just said, oh, okay, so 
the New York Times is in on it. Like they just lost credibility. It didn't actually, I, I don't think any, anyone who cared about prosperity looked at that and said, oh, I need to move to the Soviet Union. Right? Only people who already wanted to move to the Soviet Union used it as an example of something good. It didn't, it didn't entice the other side. Right. They use it to justify the, you know, it's used for indoctrination for kids and to justify, justify themselves amongst the unthinking. And there will be a large percentage of the population. If, if this eventuality happens, there'll be a large percentage of the population that is fooled by that. But you know, New Hampshire can't take a billion people anyway. So fine. True. we only get the people that are, would only get the people that are smart enough and dedicated enough to the enlightenment principles to come. Uh, that sounds like utopia. Right. And here's a, another question about that possible uh, scenario. How do you stop the subversion of your state? Uh, because, so, like, I, I don't know if you remember, but, like, months ago I sent you the uh, California creating ethnic studies at kindergarten through 12th grade stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how do you stop that sort of info from taking hold in the, the schools? Do you just make a populace that is so well-versed that they, you know, uh, dismiss it outright because they know it goes against their morals and values? Uh, what do you do well, there? Well, I don't know if you're going to like this answer because this mm. is, the, and this is the problem with the culture war and the, and the war, um, I'll say war, but like, the, and, and philosophy and the culture war. The problem is they're not, there's not quick answers to things. Right. The actual answer to that is you don't send kids to school. The government shouldn't be involved <laughs> in school. Like, yeah. that's the answer. Um, my daughter, I mean, I, I guess I'll say this, and if she turns into a social justice warrior in five years, uh, everyone can mock me for being wrong, but my daughter's inoculated against this. She's, there's no way she could go to Berkeley tomorrow. She's 11, and, like, I don't – this isn't going to work on her. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't gonna it's not gonna work because she's been taught to think for herself, use reason as her guiding uh as her only means of acquiring knowledge about the world and use her own judgment. And so like uh, this doesn't work. She sees through the arguments. She, you know, if something is uh if she's got questions about something, you know, I don't indoctrinate her, we sit down and work through it and figure out, well, are they right or am I right? Like maybe we're both wrong. Like, let's look work through it and i don't give her conclusions but you know what conclusions she comes to she she comes to the rational conclusion <laughs> like she sees through this crap right she knows that she knows that the prejudice plus power is a <laughs> bullcrap definition of racism she knows that it's racist to say you can't be racist against whites mm -hmm. like she's not dumb mm -hmm. and she's only 11 right <laughs> you know you just you don't if you don't give your kids over to indoctrination and government schools, uh, this stuff looks like the tripe that it is when they first encounter it after they've learned to critically think. <laughs> Critical thinking so, is a fun one. And that, that is a good point. So it is what I had stated before, where just when they run into it, they dismiss it outright because they realize it is, you know, bullshit. Um, right, but you want to make sure they don't run into it when they are prior to developing their own critical faculties right. and their own uh, 
I'm not saying don't run into it. You just don't want them to be indoctrinated. Like I didn't, she ran into it throughout her life. There's been bits and pieces, but you know, you don't look, if you're sending your kid to government schools, you are literally, you're a soldier factory for the enemy. That's what you're doing. And, and it's worse for you because you're going to love the soldiers that are out killing you. Like, cause they're your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, that's, and that's the hard conversation to have with people. People are like, well, what do I do? What do I do to stop the school from doing blah, blah, blah. And my blanket answer. Yeah. You can try a lot of things. You can sue them. You can do this. You can do that. You can try and argue, but you know, that's like asking in Nazi Germany, what do I do to make sure that the Hitler youth isn't at my school? Nothing, right? You do nothing, right? You can't do anything. And you don't send your kid to school if you can get away with it. And I don't know if you could probably not in Nazi Germany, but you can here. Almost every state allows you to homeschool. There's plenty of private schools. You don't have to send them there. Um, so I actually think, and I know this is a radical statement, but literally if you, if you don't let them sit around and watch TV and play video games all day, uh, literally staying home and doing nothing until they're 18 is better than sending them to school. They will learn how to cook their own food, clean their room, make their house, or, or sorry, uh, make their bed. Uh, they'll learn how to probably entertain themselves. They'll probably read. Uh, maybe you wa let them watch some documentaries. Maybe they get involved in a something that they like doing, like swimming or horseback riding or whatever it is. They will be better off. And that's, I'm literally talking about zero school. I'm not talking about homeschooling. I'm mm -hmm. talking about literally nothing. If you're the laziest yeah. person in the world, that's better than than sending them to school. Right, because at least then you're not absorbing the propaganda. Right, they can learn math later if they have to, mm -hmm. right? And frankly, they'll learn math if they have to just, you know, if they have an allowance and they have to buy stuff or they have to do like, basic life skills, if someone gets to the point of being 18 years old and they can critically think and they have basic life skills, uh, that's a win. Now, it's not the biggest win. There's a lot better that you could do. But compared to having gone through a government indoctrination program, they're way better off. Way mm -hmm. better off. Um, and I'm not suggesting you do absolutely nothing. I mean, you should right. do more than that. But even nothing is better. No, and I, I mean, I get exactly what you're saying. I went through a government school uh, for right. most, most of, of my did. education. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I look back at the – so – I was in the matrix. I was in the social justice mindset for right up until sophomore year of college, uh, which is about three years ago. Um, when did it start, by the way? When did you start getting in that social justice mindset? Oh, uh, I read the Communist Manifesto when I was 16. And, that did it for you, huh? Well, that was one of the things. I mean, I already had passively absorbed it from being in public schools for so long, but I was of the idea that a lot of people following the movement are that this is the way to be a good person this right. is the way to help people you know as it's always framed um right of course and so i started really jumping into it uh you know reading the comedy manifesto helped um watching a lot of the daily show with john stewart also helped um yep slowly absorbing opinions from teachers and stuff. I mean, luckily, uh, during high school, I went to a Catholic school. 
um, which didn't have nearly as much of the indoctrination in it thinking back as the public schools did. But at the time, I was rebelling against that sort of way of thinking. I mean, I was reading LaVey's Satanic Bible in the back of my religion class because I was an atheist. Um, So I had also, in doing so, wanted to rebel even more against conservative ideals, which is what led me to Communist Manifesto, that way of thinking. Um, I was a, we'll say, old-school leftist, those which care about economics more than social issues, um, up until college. And then freshman year, I dated a feminist and took a critical thinking class where two-thirds of it was actually critical theory. Um, Which is the opposite. Yes, exactly. And I realize that now, but back then it's like, oh, I'm learning about all these great philosophers like Horkheimer and Habermas and Adorno. This is interesting. And I, I go back and read my essays from back then, and it's it disgusts me. <laughs> um, well, that, that's, that's personal growth, buddy. That's right. Right, right, right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, the thing that broke me out of it really was uh, – a, I had found Peterson by accident before he became who he was. Uh, I was listening and reading a lot of Alan Watts, which pointed me to Carl Jung, which then pointed me to Peterson and his lectures before he took his stand against Bill C-16 and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also might have accidentally broken myself out of the Matrix by engaging in... Uh, hallucinogenic episodes on LSD. That's the best argument I've ever heard for hallucinogens. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I don't recommend it because they're not for everyone, but it definitely worked for me. Um, It made me question a whole hell of a lot of stuff. And one of those things was, and this is why I talked about the linguistic propaganda earlier, it made me start really critically thinking about the various words that were being used around me and the way that people were employing them not to seek truth, but to gain power. Yeah. And yeah, after that, I went down the rabbit hole of reading as much material as I could on the subjects and finding out where the ideology came from. Um, And two of the, the most important books that I ran into during my junior year was the Sacred Project of American Sociology by Christian Smith. Um, Smith is a sociologist of religion, and he had noticed in like 2011, 2012, that a lot of his domain of sociology could be called a faith in the way that people were practicing. And I mean, it's mm-hmm. we're seeing the outgrowth of that now. He just happened to notice it from the inside back then. So he had, and he had the courage to admit it, which I don't think a lot yes. of sociologists would have. Yes, uh, and he took a lot of flack for it even back then. Um, the other one is the Critical Turn in Education by Isaac Grotzman. Um, this one is a bit more of the Sacred Project is easy to jump into, uh, regardless of your knowledge of philosophy. Um, the Critical Turn in Education is a bit more of a high theoretical work. But 
it's been published in, or pieces of it have been published in two sociology journals, so it makes it as academic as something of this nature could be. And what it does is trace the Marxist subversion of the universities from basically the 50s onward. It talks about various thinkers. It talks about the various theories. The subtitle of it is From Marxist Critique to Post-Structuralist Feminism to Critical Theories of Race. Well, that sounds like a great book. Yes. Um, and it's, it's relatively short, too. I mean, I think it's like uh, 150 pages or something like that. Oh, wow. But okay. each uh, area that he does history in, he'll bring up the main thinkers of it. He'll bring up uh, the major theories that they came up with, and he's a true believer. So, you know, it's written by someone who is not biased against it for it. You know, he's talking about the critical turn as if it's a great thing and every school right. should be yep. going. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at like, if you look at even, I mean, they were pretty obvious about it. Like if, if you read yes. uh, Marcusa, for example, like mm-hmm. he, he's clearly like, he his his premise is that basically like a neo-marxist premise like this is where we should go um and all of his quote philosophy uh all of his his writing so which i guess philosophy he's got some philosophical concepts in there uh all of his philosophy is is built around how to get to marxism um yes. with marxism as the neo-marxism as the premise and everything else is just uh, how do we get there? And he explicitly talks about uh, taking over institutions. So like it's, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, he, he's a little bit of an elitist, right? So he'll say, well, the intellectuals have to do this because the regular people are all indoctrinated and they don't get it. And this is the failure of democracy. And we can't, you know, free exchange of ideas actually doesn't work because too many people are indoctrinated. But the intellectuals can lead and like... We're the ones who need to uh, basically take over the the institutions as much as possible and and uh, break out of this uh, kind of meta narrative that's happening. Um, he was pretty like they're they're all pretty clear about it. And it's when you it's what's funny to me is in mainstream if you say, "Oh, the Marxists took over academia." They act like you're Alex Jones, and it's yes. like, well, have you never read them? Because like they mm-hmm. literally said that's what we're doing, and then proceeded to do it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you, you you can just get that sense from going through and reading like any gender studies 101 summary on any of the right. university websites, you're going to see, oh, we produce activists. Hmm, that's interesting, and we're right. dismantling systems of oppression, and capitalism happens to be one of those. Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit. Teaching people to uh, get rid of liberal values within a liberal arts college. It's a little strange there. (laughs) Only if words have meanings, which, as we've realized, they do not beyond their manipulation value. That's that's the meaning of words to um, modern leftists. Right. And and that that sort of uh, using them for power and that, that urge for power. You brought up Marcuse earlier, and he's a really great example of it, you know. His whole doctrine of repressive tolerance was just to gain power over the culture. Absolutely, and he and actually, you know, I when I read that essay in particular, to me, it's uh, it's just proto social justice very clearly. Oh, yes. It's like, oh, this is very clearly social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's there's a few tweaks, 
but um it is he's got he's exactly got the power dynamic thing going on and he connects it to old school marxism um because he still has sort of a classist power dynamics but he does mention race and other stuff and like you know it's very clear like this is the template uh this is the template that's been used uh, another work, which, I mean, you might be aware of it um, because of Douglas Murray. He's how I found out about it originally. But uh, I think it's Hegemony and Socialist Strategy or Socialist Strategy and Hegemony. Um, it's written by LeClown Moff, and it basically takes Antonio Gramsci's idea of cultural hegemony, dissects it a little bit, um, and then the last two or three chapters are about breaking the United States cultural hegemony or the, the capitalist control of the institutions by subverting the women's and racial movements that were going on at the time. Oh, I should read that one. I haven't read it. It was That's written... Oh, sorry for interrupting. Um, no, no. It was written in 85, if I remember correctly, and if you okay. go on Google Scholar, you'll see that it's been cited over 20,000 times. Oh, so it's a little influential. So, yeah, people have read it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's uh, it's pretty it's a pretty crazy world. And I know, you know, I know a lot of people can get their uh, they can get overwhelmed by all of this uh, because, you know, I don't recommend the average person like go start reading Horkheimer and God forbid Derrida or right. uh, something like that, like. Don't go, well, I guess Derrida's postmodern, not uh, Frankfurt School, but like, I don't recommend people go do that stuff. But uh, it is it is interesting if you're interested in the philosophy. I'm still learning a lot about it. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, for, for everyone else, I kind of feel like just, I don't know that we even really need to be having these arguments with the leftists. I think we give them uh, too much stature. By pretending that their ideas are based on anything that's not nonsense right. um their ideas are explicitly based on it first of all it's all it's not it's not that there was philosophy uh it's not that it's not that someone was worried about morality and arrived at marxism as as this solution and like and it happens to be that marxism is the answer it's that marxists were frustrated uh, you know, like Marcuse and like neo-Marxists were frustrated that the, the proletariat hadn't risen up and overthrown uh, <laughs> the government and instituted communism. And so, well, we need a bunch of tools to justify Marxist takeover, Marxist revolution. And like philosophy spent the next well, parts of philosophy spent the next couple of decades just developing tools yep. for that political end. So if that's what you understand about it, you don't really need to bother arguing with like they could add infinitum invent random tools it'll be it's a never-ending battle you can dismiss it at the very top by saying like your, your explicit purpose is just marxism like marxism's wrong i don't agree with marxism it's immoral here are the reasons it's immoral i don't need to listen to your hogwash about you know <laughs> discourses and um you know lived experience and and uh the oppressions and like power dynamics between groups like none of that matters because right. all of it is developed in service to an immoral goal mm -hmm. and you know the the main reason why i went into reading as much about this is so that 
I don't know if you ever saw it, but in, I think, 2017, uh, Pluck Rose, Bogosian, and Lindsay gave a talk. Uh, the video was entitled, Is Social Justice a Religion, or something like that. And in it, uh, Peter is asked by one of the students, you know, how do you combat this? And he says, by uh, engaging in street corner epistemology. Um, and okay. So ever since then, I've been trying to practice that. And the whole reason that I read through all the philosophy and everything was because if you approach normal people, granted, they don't have to know any of the philosophy. But if you can break down in simple terms what these ideas mean and where they come from, it makes it a lot easier, at least in my experience, for people to reject them. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with that. If you have the mm -hmm. capability and interest, like you do, to do it, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm. I know, I'm not just saying. Like, I don't think it's a false. Uh, it's false to believe that the only way, like, that you're somehow being dishonest or incomplete by dismissing them because you haven't read all of the philosophers. Like, right. that's not necessary. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not. That's all I'm saying. Uh. But it is helpful to be better at convincing people. Absolutely, I think uh, I think you're right. Oh yeah, and uh, just as a quick thing, when you mentioned the if you say the Marxists took over the university, you're seen as insane. One of the best tools that I've found to counteract that is that critical turn in education book that I talked about, because it explicitly explicitly traces them doing that over the course of the last fifty years. It brags. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And it's an yeah. academic work by any standard because it was published in journals. So you can just yeah. cite that and say, well, here's someone saying that's exactly what happened. He's got the right. academic credentials. He's been published. He's got everything down. And he's a true believer at that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, and he's on. He's not. He's coming from a. <laughs> he thinks it's a good thing. Right? Mm -hmm. He's not. He's not coming from the conspiracy theory angle. He's thinking this is great. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, Al Alan, uh, I. I hope this call was helpful. Are there any other things you want to chat about before we wrap it up? Um, I don't have too much else. Uh, I mean, I definitely enjoyed it, and I like the other options that you provided, as well as you know, talking a bit more about Pinochet and his faults. Um, I think this could definitely be an interesting series that you're putting together here, uh, talking to... Um, the members of the community, because, I mean, it's a good way to do community outreach, so to speak. Um, and well, there's a lot of people like you have read interesting things. You've got interesting opinions, and, like, I can learn something from every episode like this. So it could be could be fun. We'll see if people like it, but I do. I enjoy it. I, I appreciate that. And I, uh, I'm also looking forward to seeing James Lindsay on here again uh, later today, I think, is when that one's supposed to come out. Because um, yep. that dude is... One of my major uh, intellectual heroes. I mean, he's yeah, he's great. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And yeah, watching, he, he's live. So uh, oh, okay. So don't miss him today. We'll be we'll be live. Right. So, cool. Uh, maybe we'll get into some of the stuff that you and I just talked about. So. Right. Hopefully. Uh, um, yeah. But yeah. So oh, that's cool. about all I got. All right. Well, thanks, Alan. I appreciate it. And uh, I have no idea when this will be up. But I, I appreciate okay. it, and yeah. Uh, yeah, have a good day. Yeah, you too, Carter. Have a great one.
Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. Twitter tells me there is a 98.2% chance that these are all Russian bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Pay no attention to doctors who disagree with bureaucrats at Facebook and YouTube. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>